0: That was not a punishment on Aaron for missing last week, that he had to read that long one. Um, This is just a long passage, a a long uh, bit of scripture that we're going to look at. So we want to invite our children to Children's Church. And uh, let me open us in a word of prayer before we turn to the word of the Lord. Lord, the Passover is such a big part of scripture It is something that you refer to regularly, how you delivered your people out of Egypt. Lord, it echoes throughout the New Testament. Father, this is a a huge thing that you've done, and I don't feel worthy to stand up here and talk about it. So, Lord, I need your help. I need you, Holy Spirit, to put your word on my lips, to fill my mind with what it is that you want to say to us, your people here today. And Lord, as we look at this, we pray that you would stir in us faith, Lord, that you would build in us trust in you, and that, Lord, through the preaching and the hearing of your word, we would grow in grace. Lord, please be with us now, we ask in Christ's name, amen. So I had Aaron only read just under half of what I'm actually going to preach. This morning, we're going to do all of chapter 11, all of chapter 12, and half of chapter 13. So, um, you know, should it should be done by three. <laughs> Let me explain what's going on. The, the, the problem, the quote-unquote problem is the Passover is unique. So do you remember as we went through the other plagues, it was three groups of three. And I could preach one and then do the other two and then sum up all three. And that fit really nice. When we get to the Passover, Moses goes into so much more detail. He goes into so much more repetition. It's built so much bigger. That's why it starts with this idea that this is another, this is a, this unique plague. This is something very different than what's come before. So um, it, it, it would be nice if we could just take it in little you know, half an hour sermon chunks But the text doesn't lend itself to that. One of the commentators said, uh, the problem is the narrative of the 10th plague is a large chunk of text to use as a basis of a Sunday sermon. The integrity of this plague would be lost or at least misplaced if it's not treated together. The inspired text does not always conform to the neat 30-minute exposition. It is better if we conform our expectations to the text rather than the other way around. So i got to tell you, this week it just was terrifying to me to think, I'm going to preach two and a half chapters? Those poor people. There's another thing that's happening here is the way Moses tells this. There's something very unique about the Passover. It didn't happen with any of the other plagues. None of the other plagues were they told, you remember this one and you celebrate throughout your days this particular plague, the, the locust. Boy, you don't ever forget this. That didn't happen. But when it comes to the Passover... God is telling them, you will celebrate the Passover for the rest of the time. This is something you will come back to over and over and over again. And so when Moses tells this story, what he's doing is, is if we look at it from where Moses is writing, right? Moses is sitting in the desert and he's got his pen to paper. 20, 30 years prior, they had the Passover. And so now he's going back and he's telling them, this is the story. Remember the story of how we came out of Egypt, the Passover that happened. But Moses is also standing and he's looking forward to where they're going. We're heading to the promised land. We're going to settle. And they need to remember this. And God has given us commandments on this this ceremony called the Passover that we have to continue to celebrate. And so when he writes this section, he's weaving back and forth between the event of the Passover and the deliverance of the Passover, the memorial of the Passover. This is what happened. And so he goes back and forth. I printed out five pages of, of paper. I just took this whole section and I moved it between two columns so you could see whether it was the event or the deliverance. And and it just weaves back and forth. Why would Moses write it that way? Why would he do that? I think the reason he's doing it is he wants us to have tied together in our mind these two events. You can't have the Passover meal if there was no deliverance. It doesn't make any sense. It's It's a work of fiction. It's based on nothing. And if you have the event and then you forget it, well, then you forget who you are. And so he weaves these together because that's exactly what the Passover is going to be for God's people. It has to be rooted and tied to God's deliverance of his people. So what I want to do this morning is is try to parse it out a little bit. So what I want to do is go through the event of the Passover, kind of recount that timeline, talk through what happened, then talk through the memorial. What does God leave us with, that, that memorial? And then... Talk about our deliverance in light of that. So it's, it's a big task, and you may have a verse or two in here that you're just dying to get an answer on, and I may not touch it, and I'm really sorry. Talk to me afterward, and I'll see if I can make a... I mean, uh, remember, a, a convincing answer for you. Because um, I did do a lot of reading on this section, but there's just too much here to, to uh, cover it all. Also, there's a lot of repetition. So I'm just going to do a lot of summary, a lot of summing up to draw it together. Um, it, it's important that we hold this the way that he did it. Because my original temptation was to do two sermons, do one on the event and then one on the memorial. But um, that commentator I mentioned earlier, he also said, uh, more important, the regulation of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the laws concerning the consecration of the firstborn are not merely legal baggage tacked onto the narrative. Rather, these regulations are integrally related to the plague It is contrary to the flow of the narrative to subdivide the section into smaller parts. And so I was rebuked by that, and I thought, okay, this is the way Moses wrote it. This is the way we're going to approach it. So that's what we're going to do. So chapter 11. If we look at chapter 11, it's a fairly short chapter, only 10 verses, and it really serves as an introduction to the Passover. It's setting things up. So 11 verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague will be upon Pharaoh. So it's introducing this one more plague. Remember I said it was nine plagues in one. That's it. Now what's, what's notable is the ESV translates that first line, the Lord had said to Moses. He, he puts it in the in past tense, the Lord had previously said this. So is the ESV wrong? Did, did it just mess it up? Why is it the ESV only does it that way? Everybody else does the Lord said to Moses. It sounds like it's happening right now. Um, here's the problem. With English verbs, the time of the verb is tied into it, isn't it? I said, happened yesterday, I say, I'm saying now, I will say, I will have said. So our, our verb has a time component to it. We know when the event happens. With Hebrew, it's not that sophisticated. Hebrew doesn't have a sense of time to their verbs. It has two one gentleman, what do you call it, a, a, a phase or something? I forget what he referred to it as. It's either, oh, state. It's either complete or it's in process. But it doesn't tell you the timeline on it. So how do you tell the time of the ver- a verb? Well, you have to look at the broader context. So the ESV did that. They looked at the, wor- the verb had said, or to say, or said, and said, now is that past, present, or future? Because we have to translate it in English, and that's how we speak. So the question is, did God ever say this before? Is this something that God had previously said? Well, what he says is, one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh in Egypt. Afterward, he'll let you go. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. And then what he announces is a couple of things that that, um, you're supposed to ask for jewelry from everybody. And then he also um, says that uh, they will find favor in the sight of Pharaoh and the people. Well, yeah, you know what? God has said this before. He tells us in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was at the burning bush, listen to what God told Moses at the burning bush. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after he will let you go, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing. So you shall put them on the sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. God had already said that before. So that's what the ESV is doing, is they're saying, well, this is something that God has already said. And then the next thing that it says is, and Moses said, thus says the Lord around midnight, I will go into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. So is that something that God had announced beforehand? Well, it is. Exodus chapter 4, this is as soon as Moses returns to Egypt, So that's something that Moses had said, or that God had told Moses before. So it sounds like chapter eleven is kind of looking back that way. There's another problem, if we want to call it that. Do you remember the last plague, the ninth plague, the darkness? How it ended? You just look up a few verses in your Bible. Uh, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart; he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, said to Moses, "Get away from me! Take care; you never see my face again. For the day you see my face, you shall die." And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Chapter 11. And then Moses said to Pharaoh. So what's going on, what's possibly going on is because we don't get this time on the verbs, is this could be Moses kind of recounting what had happened. So I think what happened was when Moses and Pharaoh have that little spar, it's not like two kids going, uh, no, you shut up. No, you shut up. No, you shut up. It's, It's not anything that immature. Good heavens, think of all that's gone before them. This is dead serious business. So how is it that they now face off again? And, and Pharaoh doesn't try to kill him. Well, it could be that that was just hyperbole and now they're coming back and go, well, this isn't resolved yet, Pharaoh, we've got to get this worked out. Or it could be, Moses left this part out of the telling of the ninth plague because it more properly belongs to the 10th plague. And so he's repeating it here. So he's saying one more time, he says, so imagine what happened, because what it says at the end of this is it says that he left in hot anger. And doesn't that sound like the end of chapter 11, or chapter 10, rather? It is oh, you will not see my face again. And what he announces on the way out the door is, God is going to kill your firstborn. At midnight, this is going to happen. And so that's the warning. Why, why, why is that important? Why does that matter? I, I think it's important because when we establish the timeline of the, uh, the exodus, This interaction with Pharaoh has got to fit into the right place. Um, So that's why it's important to see this chapter 11 as this, this introduction. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's gone on before. We're getting ready for this big one. This is something new, and here it comes. So chapter 12. Chapter 12, like I said, weaves back and forth between the two. Between tonight you're going to do this and in the future you're going to do this. And so let me try to gather up the timeline of what happened in the Exodus. So Moses has this showdown with Pharaoh, and he says, Pharaoh, at midnight, your kid's going to die. God's going to come through Egypt and kill all the children because you won't let me go, because you won't let our people go. And then he leaves in hot anger. He storms out of the palace and doesn't see Pharaoh again. Now, sometime later, God comes to Moses and Aaron, and he says, okay, this month, is going to be the beginning of your year. The the month of Abib is going to be the start of your year. And on the 10th day of this month, everybody in Egypt is to go and select a lamb. So that means that this is sometime before the 10th of Abib, and it is looking forward. I want everybody in Israel to go select a lamb. And what they're going to do is they're going to take this lamb, and they're going to hang on to it from the 10th to the 14th. And the word there is that it's going to, he says, to keep it or to guard it. So this lamb is now taken from the flock and brought and kept in in captivity, is is watched over, guarded over. This is a special lamb. There's something unique about this. Um, A friend of ours who taught a Sunday school on this said they bring it into the house with them. The lamb comes and lives with them. That's kind of the sense of what's going on here is this lamb is to be guarded. So they keep that lamb for four days. The lamb has got to be uh, a year old, no older than one year old. It can be from the goats or the sheep, um, either one. And it is to be without blemish. In other words, if it's got scratches or scars or, or it's got um, mottled skin or a or broken leg or anything you can't have, it. it's got to be this perfect lamb. So now on the 14th, uh, the 14th day, the, the after four days of holding it, Every, everybody, the entire congregation is to take that lamb that they've taken for their household and they're going to kill it. They're going to kill it at twilight. Literally, the Bible says between the evenings, but that's probably means twilight. So as the evening is wearing on, you'll kill this lamb. And what you'll do is you'll take the lamb and, and you'll hang it up by its feet to let the blood drain out. That's nothing new. That's not some new uh, commandment. God had told Noah now you can eat animals, but you can't eat them with blood. And so draining blood out of animals is nothing new. But on this one, they have to put a basin under there and catch that blood as they bleed the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the lamb, as they let it go out. Then once they've bled the lamb, it's, it's all bled out, then they take a branch of Hossip Hyssop is, is just a, a kind of weedy little plant. You grab that, and it says to splash it or throw it on the doorpost and the lentil of your house. So this blood is now smeared above and on the sides of your door. And then you take this animal, you bring it in, and you roast it. You don't boil it. You don't eat it raw. Raw lamb just doesn't sound good to me. <laughs> it makes me a little queasy thinking about it. But boil. you don't boil it. You eat it roasted. And you eat all of it. It all has to be consumed. The other thing that you eat with that is you're going to, that night... You're also going to eat unleavened bread and bitter herbs. That, that's your meal for the evening. Um, so what's up with the bitter herbs? Uh, we'll talk about the unleavened bread in a little bit. That's, that's got some more significant. The bitter herbs are just kind of thrown in there. The last time the word bitter was used was in chapter 1, verse 14, talking about the he made their, Pharaoh made their life bitter by imposing heavy labors on them. So perhaps the bitter herbs is looking back to and reminding them, what have you been delivered from? From this bitter life that you had, this this labor that you were under. So then if anything is left over in the morning, um, I was joking with Dan, no leftovers. You burn them up, right? So we're gonna cancel leftovers, it's over. We're gonna burn it to the ground. no, we're not, because last week there were like 23 people. So it's, it's thriving. Don't mess with that. Um, but on Passover, there's no leftovers. It, it goes. The other thing is that people are told to eat in haste. One of the things, I, I eat too fast. I don't know why. I just do. But um, I, I feel like I should slow down. But now I feel like I'm justified. I'm, doing, I'm celebrating Passover. I eat in haste. So he tells them to eat it fast. And then he tells them, you put your sandals on your feet. You buckle up your belt and you have your staff in your hand when you eat. We'll come back to why he does that, what's significant about that in a little bit. And so the other thing is, this is not some solitary meal where the family hives off and hides by themselves. What he says is, is every family is to select a lamb based on the size of the family, how many people have they got to feed. And if one household is too small to have a lamb, then they pair up not with some other person that they find you know that's got a small house. You go to the nearest household that you're next to, and you join them. So if if there was a couple, a barren couple that didn't have any children, one lamb might be too much for them. That's way too much to eat. So they would take their lamb and go next door and say, let's eat together. But that's what they do. So they, they join together. It is a communal meal. Also, did you notice at twilight, the whole community sacrifices their lamb? They do it together. This is intended to not just separate because everyone has to stay in their house. What Moses tells them is, you go in, you don't step out the door until the morning. So you stay in, but it's not to to divide it up. So that's their preparation. That's what they've been told to do. Did you notice that in all the other plagues, Israel is never told to do anything? There, There is nothing that Israel has to do to be spared by this plague. Because, like, think of the hail, right? The hail was going to come, and, and Moses said, if you're smart, you will bring your slaves and your servants and your children and your, and your uh, livestock inside and get them out of the way. And the people who feared the word of the Lord did that. And then he says, but there was no hail in the land of Goshen. It didn't fall on God's people. They didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to run in and hide. They just, they were there. But this one, this plague is different this one, they have to do this thing. This is what you must do. So that's what they do. And then what happens? At midnight, the Lord passed through Egypt, and he killed all the firstborn. Why? Doesn't that seem over the top, to kill all the firstborn? Some, some critics think this is just cruel of God to go through and wipe out the firstborn of everybody. How is that fair? Well, if we just kind of parachuted into chapter 12 here and had heard nothing else of anything else, yeah, it seems pretty cruel. What's been going on leading up to this? God has been bringing plague upon plague, and he hasn't killed anybody until the hail is when people start dying. He brings in all of these things over and over and over again, and when he finally gets to the hail where somebody's going to die, he tells them, bring your stuff in and you'll be spared. So if anybody would listen, they would be spared. So now when we come to this one, it's not like there was some Egyptians who went, oh my gosh, your God is powerful and I'm terrified. Can I join you? And they went, no. Or they went, yeah, and they died inside anyway. There was opportunity for deliverance here. God had extended over and over again a demonstration of his power. And then by the time we get to the hail, he says, there's a way to flee from this. There's a way out of this if you will just come to my people. And the same thing happens here because God goes through the land and he kills the firstborn. And and it's it's alarming the way it's described. The firstborn from Pharaoh's house to the handmaiden at at the mill, grinding corn. And then later on in chapter 13, he says all the way down to the slave in jail and the livestock. So nobody in in all of Egypt is spared from this. This wrath comes, this judgment comes, and it's terrifying. But, the most holy word in the Bible, but. But the Lord will pass over the door with blood on it and will not allow the destroyer to strike you. Listen to those words carefully. The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to strike you. So as the judgment's coming, as this this destroyer, this avenging angel is coming, the Lord passes over the door. And the question is, what does Passover mean? We don't know exactly what what that is getting at in the Hebrew. But one commentator said, well, what it means is he's coming and he's going to stand at the door, and it is the Lord himself, when he sees the blood, he says, you go around. It's the Lord himself who is stopping the destruction coming to his people. That's what's happened. And so this is something that God has done before, if you think about it. Do you remember the the story in uh, Genesis 18 of Sodom? It's similar to this. God comes to um, Abraham. It's God and two angels, and they sit down and they talk with Abraham. And God says specifically, I will go down and see whether they have done according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So God is saying, I'm going to go down to Sodom, and I'm going to look. And if they're as bad as they as, as, say they are, I'll know. And if they're not, then I'll know. So he's going to come, and he's going to join them. What happened was he stays and negotiates with Abraham, and two angels go down. And they assess the situation and go, Lot, you got to leave. There's, there's no other option. So in, in a similar kind of way, God is coming with judgment and delivering his people. But with the Passover, it's God himself standing at the door and saying, no, destroyer, you go around this house. These are my people. So the Lord will block the entry of the destroyer. He will be the protective covering for his people. The security of his people is in his presence. And so in the middle of the night, Egypt awoke and found the firstborn dead, and a wail went up as had never been heard before and would never be heard again. It was terrifying, it was horrible to see the dead scattered everywhere. And so what happens is Moses summoned, I mean, I'm mean, i sorry, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night, 1231. The sun hasn't even come up. Midnight, God strikes them, the sun hasn't even risen and Pharaoh sends for Moses and calls him in, get out, take everything you have and leave. And the implication is now. Do it now. Don't wait. Because the very next verse says the Egyptians were urgent that the people would leave. That they would be sent out in haste. When God's deliverance came, it wasn't, well, you know, in three weeks, um, we'll end this. Let, let's, let's negotiate here. We, you know, if we stop the slavery in a couple of weeks, and then give you another week to get your stuff together and go, it, it, it's not like that. This is urgent. This is instantaneous. Get out now. And so that's what they do is they get up and leave. And as they're going, they're taking jewelry and clothing and gold. And it says at the end of that, thus, they plundered the Egyptians, which was what God had told them they would do. So why are they plundering the Egyptians? What's going on there? The Egyptians are so glad to be rid of them. And, and put yourself in Egyptian's position for a moment. You've just gone through nine plagues, and now the firstborn is dead. And, and the person who's from these people keeps announcing, this is what my God is doing. Our God is judging you. Our God is judging your gods. You look at them and you go, yeah, okay, please leave. We've had enough of you. Just go. And so that is the evacuation. That is how they leave. They leave rich. So that's the night of the, uh, the Passover. That was their deliverance. That was how it came about. But what Moses has been doing is he's been going back and forth and weaving into that. Now, this is what you'll do in the future to remember this night. And so let's go through the the memorial. What happens with the memorial? Well, first of all, it is the same time every year. Just like this one happened on the 10th and then the 14th of Abib, that's when you'll do it every year. It's the same time every year over and over again because you'll remember exactly what happened. So, before we start on that, though, the modern Jews celebrate Passover and they have something called, they celebrate a Seder meal and they have something called the Haggadah. And the Haggadah is like a script that tells you how the evening will go. It's here's all the things that you're going to do. Um, what's in the Haggadah, a lot of it is not in the Bible, it, it's not scriptural. That doesn't make it wrong. Think about this this is a 3,400 year old rite. You think it's going to pick up some traditions along the way? It's been around for a long time. So it's not what the Jews do today with the Haggadah and the Seder and all that is incorrect. It's simply not what God commanded. It's, it's an addition to all of that. So when we look at what God commands, it's a lot simpler. It's a lot smaller than what they see in, in the, uh, the Haggadah. So let's take a look at what is commanded here in chapter 12. So on the first day of the feast, on the 14th, that's when you celebrate the Passover meal. On that day, you get all the, the um, leaven out of your house. And so that's why that night you have unleavened bread with your meal is because you've gotten the leaven out of your house. And then for the next seven days, you eat unleavened bread. No leaven in the house. So what is leaven? What's wrong with leaven? What's it, what's it uh, indicate here? Um, the Haggadah that I've seen point out that the leaven is symbolic of sin. And perhaps you've heard that. That's fairly common teaching within evangelicals. Um, The biblical picture is more complicated than that. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, I think the Jews get the idea that this is emblemic and it is an emblem of sin because uh, in the law, there's at least two or three times where God says, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. So it sounds like we don't want that in there. Um, And from a New Testament perspective, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, which we'll come back to, Paul warns about boasting, and he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and he calls the old leaven the leaven of evil and malice. So we we think that that's kind of the picture, is it's about sin, right? Um, Also, when Jesus says, you know what, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Herod, um, it sounds like he's saying beware of their sinfulness, but... Their sin was obvious. You didn't need to be aware of that. You could die from it. That was pretty obvious. So it sounds like it's sin, but like I said, the, the, when we take in more of the Bible, it's a little more complicated than that. First of all, is sacrifice about not sin? About getting rid of sin? Get rid of your sin and then come offer a sacrifice. Well, how do you get rid of your sin? You offer the sacrifice. So imagine this. On the Day of Atonement, they take two goats, and they bring them to Aaron, and Aaron puts his hands on the head of one goat and confesses all the sins of Israel. That's sin right there in the midst of it. That goat is then driven out into the desert. The other goat is taken, and and Aaron will offer a sacrifice for his sin. And then what he'll do is he'll take that in, and he'll go in behind the veil, and he'll offer a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. So right in the middle of the idea of sacrifice is sin. That's why we have sacrifice. We need to get rid of our sins. So to say, well, we get the leaven out because we don't want our sin in our sacrifice, that's exactly where I want it. I want it taken care of. I want it dealt with. So I don't think that one works really well. Um, Also, there are offerings that that have leavened bread included. We tend to forget about them. They're a bit obscure because they're in a bit of book of Leviticus. And that by the time we get to Leviticus, our eyes are kind of glazed over and we're, we're not really paying close attention anymore. But they're not burnt offerings, but they are um, uh, offerings. So, for example, Leviticus 7.13 commands that leavened bread be part of the peace offering. It specifically says bring it leavened as part of the peace offering. Now, that's not burnt up on the altar, but it is brought in as an offering. And Leviticus 23, 17 commands that it's part of the Feast of Weeks is that leavened bread is brought in. So leaven doesn't really work as a symptom or a symbol of sin there, does it? The worst part is, in my opinion, the one that you you just really have a hard time getting around is um, when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in, uh, in three measures of flour until it was all leavened is Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is like sin. Good heavens, no. It's the opposite of sin. It's the freedom from sin. So when, when Jesus talked about beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees, Matthew gives us, does a favor and goes on and explains what that meant. Matthew 16, 12, he says, they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teachings of the Pharisees and the scribes. So I think if you couple that with the kingdom of God being leaven and a dough, I think it's talking about influence. I think it's talking about persuasion and influence. But when one of the other things, beware of Bible codes, where words mean these, these mysterious things all the way through the Bible. And every time you see leaven, think this. Um, it doesn't work that way. That Normal human language doesn't work that way. It's, it's not some mystery code you need a decoder ring to get to. When it comes to why is there unleavened bread in the Passover, the Bible is extraordinarily clear. It makes it obvious to us. Right there in chapter 13, unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen in your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Is sin in there anywhere? No, it's what he did to get you out of Egypt. Deuteronomy. Moses' farewell sermon, he goes back and he says, You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. The reason that they have unleavened bread with the Passover is because they left in haste. And that's how it's described when they leave. They said they took their kneading bowls, they had the dough in it, and they just wrapped it up in their cloaks and put it on their shoulders and left. They didn't have time to put the leaven back in because they just celebrated with unleavened bread. That's what they ate for the Passover. And it's not like, you know, we go to the store and and how long does bread last? It's kind of freaky, man. It can last for months. That wasn't like that back then. You ate it or it went bad. So they had unleavened bread and then it was time to make more bread and they hadn't put the leaven in yet and they got chased out of town. That's why you eat unleavened bread with the Passover is our deliverance came that quick. It was really fast. So that's what the unleavened bread means. Promised I'd come back to it. There are some things that are different about the memorial than in the original event. For example, um, there is no command or example After the original event of ever putting blood on the doorposts again, it's just, first of all, it's it's never mentioned, which absence of a mention doesn't mean absence of an event. But the closest you can get, the closest you get to blood and Passover was when Josiah, remember King Josiah, they found the book of the law in the temple and they brought it to him. And he was just heartbroken. We need to do this. And so what they did is they celebrated the Passover. And what it says in 2 Chronicles 35, verse 11, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb, and the priests threw the blood that they'd received from them. They threw the blood. What does that mean? We grabbed the blood and went, oh, Chuck. <laughs> if you look at the law, when it says throwing the blood, the, throwing the blood almost always means they would take the blood after the sacrifice and throw it on the sides of the altar. That was part of the act of sacrifice. There's another place where they threw the blood on the people. But that was at the initiation of the covenant. That was the covenant initiation where Moses is throwing blood on the people. He put it on the testimony and he throws it on the people. So I think what's going on here is what Josiah's priest did is after they slaughtered the Passover lambs, they threw the blood against the sides of the altar. And then the the nation took the lambs and had Passover. So the the blood never goes back on the doors. Modern day Jews don't put blood on doors. It's just not part. It's not one of the things that's repeated. Um, The other thing that's not repeated is they don't eat dressed to go. They don't have a staff in their hand, they don't have shoes on and belt, and, they're stand- and they don't wolf it. As a matter of fact, if you go to a Seder meal, it's a, it's a long thing where you've got these separate entities and you do this and this and this, and it takes a while to get through the process. So it's not eaten in haste the way the original one was. Um, what's added to the, um, the, the memorial but wasn't present in the original was, Moses adds the stipulation that none of the lamb's bones be broken. In 1246, he says, don't break any of the bones. Now, he never mentioned that at the beginning. They probably didn't anyway because they eat the whole thing. But th- th- he makes it clear going forward, you don't break any bones. And then the other thing that wasn't present in the original but is added is these holy assemblies at the beginning and at the end. So it's really kind of frustrating because he doesn't say what the holy assembly is. Moses, please give us a divinely inspired liturgy for these holy assemblies. We would like to know what you do, but it just says you hold hold a holy convocation at the beginning and at the end. So those weren't there. The other thing that's added at the end of this, this memorial that goes on, um, is the consecration of the firstborn. And and what, what God tells us in chapter 13 is he says, the firstborn belong to me because... I went through Egypt and I spared your firstborn. And so what he tells them is the firstborn of a donkey that's that's born, the first male donkey born to a, a female donkey, you either snap its neck when it's born or you sacrifice a lamb to redeem it. And then he says you also redeem your firstborn. So when a, when a woman has a first son, they would have to offer a sacrifice for that. Now what will happen later on is... God will take the Levites in their place. Numbers 3, verse 12, he says, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine. So he he redeems, God himself redeemed Israel's firstborn. Uh, But but that is something that's going to be a statute going on for, for the rest of the time is, you have an um, um, animal that has a the first time they have a male child, a male offspring, you either sacrifice a lamb in its place or you kill it because God has redeemed them. So why do all of that? Why is that this ritual built in? Well, one of the things that's repeated in a couple of places is when you have the Passover, as a matter of fact, God says, when you get to the land flowing with milk and honey. Think about that. He's just worked their, re- their deliverance. They've been chased out of Egypt. They're heading out. And he says, okay, now when you get to the land flowing with milk and honey, in other words, you're getting to the land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to happen. That's why this deliverance came. When you get there and you celebrate the Passover and your son looks at you and goes, Dad, why are we doing this? This is a weird thing. He said, this is what you tell them. This is how God delivered us. And you tell them this story. That's why Moses wove these things together, is so that you could tell them the story. And then it also in chapter 13, when it talks about redeeming the firstborn, it's the same thing. Dad, why did you sacrifice a lamb because we had a male donkey? I don't. What's the connection? Oh, son, remember the story of the Passover? Remember how we celebrated Passover a few weeks ago? Well, here's what happened. And you've been redeemed because God has told us to redeem you. And so it's a chance to once again repeat that story, repeat that story, repeat that story. So that's the memorial. That's the Passover. What about us? How does this, how does this connect to us? Um, this is a picture. Remember when we went through the nine plagues, it was a picture of deliverance, how God delivered his people. And what he did in the plagues to deliver his people is the same thing he does in, in, to the deliver us. There was a repetition there. The Passover, I mean, this is one that I'm probably p- guilty of preaching to the choir. We all know where this one's going. There's no surprise here. But let me do it anyway, because that's what I get paid for. So I told you I'd come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to what he says. This is a little broader context. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ is our Passover lamb. He's been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, don't let this get past you. That's, that's a beautiful picture. And we think of Christ as our Passover Lamb, and we, you know, praise the Lord that He shed his blood to deliver me. But look where Paul is heading with this. He doesn't look back to our deliverance. He says, since Christ is our Passover lamb. Now look forward to your life. What is your life supposed to be like now? Your life now should be unleavened. Get the leaven, of, the old leaven of malice and evil out. And instead, it's not just seven days. It's the rest of our life of, of the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Because we have been delivered, he's looking forward to how we live now. He's not calling us back to the cross and back to the cross and back to the cross and saying, always go back there and don't ever go forward. He's saying, because of the cross, because Christ is our Passover lamb, now you go this way. You live this way. You live like this. You have been liberated. You're no longer a slave. You've been set free. Now go that direction. And it's not independent of the cross. It's because of the cross. And we remember it. We keep remembering it. But we're looking forward in our life. Where do we go next? What's the next thing we do? Jesus is our Passover lamb. Not one bone of his was broken on the cross. John chapter 19. When when they hung the prisoners on the cross, I've told you this before, but it bears repeating. Crucifixion was absolutely a horrible way to die. Your hands are nailed out, so you're hanging from your arms. And what happens is it will suffocate you because this all pulls up into your neck and you can't breathe. So to get a breath, you have to stand up. You have to push yourself up and get the weight off of your arms to inhale. But there's nails in your feet as well. And so it's excruciating pain to stand up and catch a breath, and then it's excruciating pain to let go with your feet and sag down. So it would take days for people to suffocate this way. It was a horrible way to die. And so when the Jews come to Pilate, they said, you know what, we're not supposed to leave people on the tree overnight and the Passover is tomorrow. And so we don't want to have this thing happening right now. So make this go away, Pilate. I know usually this will take weeks, but make it go away now. So the way they would do it is they would come out with this big, huge hammer and they'd slam it into the the, the shin of the people on the cross and shatter that bone. So now they couldn't stand back up. And so they would just hang there and they would suffocate and die. So they come out to do that. And this is what it says. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again... Another scripture says, they will look on him who they've pierced. So the, the spear into the side and out comes water and blood. That is how you, that's what happens when you asphyxiate, is the sack that surrounds your lungs fills with water. So when the soldier sticks the spear in and water comes out, medical doctors go, oh, yep, that's exactly what happened. That, that, that is specifically what would happen. But he says it fulfills the scriptures, not one of his bones will be broken. And if you look at the cross-reference, not inspired. <laughs> the little, little tiny number there is not inspired, but the cross-reference points to Exodus 12. Don't break any bones. So Jesus, as our Passover lamb, has died in our place. He was offered on, on, on Passover. He bled and he died, and not one of his bones was broken. This is how Jesus has redeemed us. And here's the other thing that's really amazing to think of is do you remember when we talked about the burning bush? When, when God announced his name, he said, I am who I am. What will you tell the people? You Tell them Yahweh has sent you. I am. And do you remember who I said that was? We went back and looked at, at Jesus saying, before Abraham was Yahweh. So this God that we've been dealing with in, in the, the plagues and in, in Egypt is none other than Jesus himself before he became man. So now go back to that when God says, I will stand at your door and I will deflect the destroyer. It's Jesus who is doing that. Jesus himself is saying, I will come. The judgment is coming because of me, but I will stand before my people and deflect the wrath that is coming. So this week, they pulled a 1,000-pound, 12-foot great white shark out of the Atlantic. That's a big fish. That is huge. You just I mean, like, jaws size big. And that's scary. I mean, wouldn't, if you were swimming in the ocean, you saw 12-foot of shark coming at you, wouldn't you be a little afraid? You know what's even more frightening? There was a huge bite on its head. Something bigger than it got a hold of it. Now, which one should you be afraid of? The thing that, the thing that terrifies you, right? Something bigger came along. So look at it this way. Egypt is scary, isn't it? Egypt is the powerhouse of the ancient Near East. They have the military might. They have chariots. They can build chariots that nobody else can match. And these chariots in that time and day were like tanks. Now imagine going up against a tank with a spear. Not going to last long. Egypt has this military might because they have a huge economy. That, that River Nile that runs through their territory is a, is a source of immense wealth. Money can flow from farther south in, in Africa up the Nile and be traded through there as it dumps into the Mediterranean and off to the, the rest of the known world. They make tons of money. They, make, they have the, the, the scariest army. And so this is where Israel is, is. I'm afraid of these. Well, who just bit the head of Egypt? That's the one you should be afraid of. That's who you should be terrified of. And, and how is, what is the answer here to how do I deflect that power, that kind of power? It's the blood of a lamb. It's the most weak and helpless thing there is. Imagine if I was to tell you China is, is on the move. China is coming after us, you guys. They have the economic powerhouse to replace the dollar with the the yen. They're gonna kick us out of that. They've got a military, they can march in the ocean for a month and not run out of troops, and they're coming. What what, would you think? That would be terrifying, wouldn't it? And now I said, okay, look, there's only one way around this. There's only one way to deflect the power of China. Get a kitten. Wait, what? (laughs) That's how I deflect the power is with a kitten? That's that's what's happening here when when God says this power that's going to overwhelm Egypt is coming, and the only way to deflect it it was with the blood of the Lamb. He's saying the weakest thing you can imagine is the only way around it. Jesus is the one who does that. He is our Passover, so how is it that Jesus in his weakness stands in front of our door as we hide under his blood and deflects that? Listen to Philippians chapter 2. Christ Jesus So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How did Jesus accomplish that? Did he come in power and majesty and overwhelming angels and just slaying everybody? He took the form of a servant. The infinite, the endless, the the unlimited God added to his infinity human nature. He who could never die added to himself a frailty that could die. He who could never sleep added to himself a body that needed sleep. He who never hungered added to himself a body that if it didn't be fed, it would die. And then think of the the manger. The God of the universe, the being who holds all things together by the power of his will, is laying in a bundle of straw wrapped in swaddling clothes, and he can't control his bowels. And if he doesn't get fed, he will die. Do you get the picture of why Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? He took to himself such frailty, such brokenness, such weakness, that he was the invincible power that would deflect the wrath of God. This is our deliverance, my friends. So do we have a meal that we celebrate and we remember and we, we repeat over and over and over again and tell our children this is why we do it? We have the Lord's Supper. And we repeat that every week. Well, I wish we did it every week. We do it every month. We go over it and over it and over it. We keep looking back and we keep remembering this is Jesus' body broken for you. This is his blood poured out for you. It's no different, is it? We're we're walking with Israel through this, except our deliverance is fuller and richer and more permanent. We don't reenact it. They didn't redo the blood. They had to slaughter the lamb, but they didn't put the blood on the doors every time. The blood has been shed for us. We don't re-sacrifice Jesus every time we do communion. We remember, we look back, we say we celebrate what he has done. He's given us that. And the other thing that is mentioned here is, when you get to the land and you celebrate Passover, no foreigner shall celebrate it with you unless he's circumcised. And if you get there, when you get there and you own slaves, slavery is a whole other issue. We can't go into it right now. Think of the, the, what this means to a group of slaves departing Egypt to be told, when you get where you're going and you own a slave, I'm going to own a slave? When you get there, if you own a slave, If the slave circumcised, he can eat, but if not, he can't. So what do we do with communion? We say this all the time. We practice an open table, which is to say anybody can come and eat. You don't have to be a member of this church if you've been circumcised. And what we mean by that is heart circumcision, regeneration. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Then come and eat. And if you're not, then just sit and wait. Watch what happens. Notice God doesn't tell them chase all the foreigners off and 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 go do this in private and hide and don't let anybody see. The, the foreigners are going, Where'd all the Jews go? Oh, they're doing this Passover thing. Really? What's that? I'll ask them when they come out. We'll see them in a couple of days. They're there, they're seeing it. So when a non-believer comes in and eats with us, and we ask him, please don't take part of this if you don't trust Jesus, if Jesus isn't your deliverance. It's still an invitation, it's still calling, it's still saying, we want you to be able to participate in this. So we get the same thing, we have a, the similar deliverance, we have the same meal, and we, we celebrate the same thing over and over and over again. And what did Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 11? As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you celebrate his death, looking backward, until he comes, looking forward. It's the same meal. You, you eat this Passover to remember what happened there, but you're looking forward for God's fuller deliverance. Like Ramey was saying this morning, waiting for that chord to resolve. The Passover is just almost there, and then Jesus shows up and does the Lord's Supper, and you hear that, that harmonious, beautiful ring of the, the completed melody, the completed uh, chord, and you go, yes, Lord, that's what we were waiting for. So that is our Passover. That is our deliverance. Where we'll go next is we'll follow him out of Egypt. Um, the, the tempo of the preaching will change because we've been really kind of focused on the, the, uh, the uh, plagues, and now we're going to be on a road trip. So we go to a, a road trip movie next instead of this, this tight little thing. So let's, let's pray and thank God for our deliverance. Lord Jesus, you took on yourself the burden of our sin. You, you allowed it to crush you. You were pleased, The Father was pleased to crush you. He was pleased to bruise you in our stead. And yet, Lord, you would cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even in your suffering, even in your death, you quote scripture and you cry out for your God. And Lord, we are so grateful you did that in our place. Thank you for being our Passover lamb. Thank you for helping us to see what it is to be saved by writing not in books that would be found in libraries but Lord by writing in the history of a people that you made your own by writing in the history of the Jewish people this promise of what our deliverance would look like Lord you're amazing that you write in the lives of people like that and so Lord I pray that as we reflect on the Passover and we think about the meal And the next time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Lord, would you use that to strengthen our faith, to cause us to trust you? Lord, you have been doing that very thing for 3,400 years. You've been saying it over and over and over again. And I pray that we would believe it. And Lord, if there are those who are not believers who come with us, who, who sojourn with us, Lord, we pray that you would open their minds and their hearts so that they might celebrate Passover next year. And Lord, we ask all of these things in your name and for your glory, amen.